the mostly untrue thing that we really got to stop believing this week is this idea that religion doesn't belong in the workplace. Uh, that's the departmentalization of faith that I was talking about earlier. Um, it's, you know, I think as we're looking at a, the story of Daniel in this series, and we're actually only, this is the only time we're going to be looking at Daniel. It's interesting. Somebody might say, why don't you look at Daniel in the lion's den? Why don't you look at Shadrach and Meshach uh, and Abednego, the three men in the fiery furnace? Why don't you look at one of the more fantastic stories like that? Uh, and I'll admit that they are, in fact, fantastic and that they also are tremendously helpful and you can, you can apply many of the teachings to your life. The problem, however, for some is that they're not immediately relevant. In other words, anybody who, as a 21st century Christian in America, is saying that, yes, my expression of Christian faith is exactly like Daniel in the lion's den, or it's exactly like the three men in the fiery furnace, that is not true. That's a caricature, that's an exaggeration, and you lose actually some credibility when you start to talk that way. However, when you talk about Daniel 1, see, that's incredibly fathomable. What we're about to read here is immediately relevant in our walk of life today. And I'm going to read Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 21. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord, of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by the way, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the, the, the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them to be ten times better than all of the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Here ends our lesson. Now, I mentioned that this is in some ways immediately relevant, even though it's a story from uh, thousands of years ago. It's immediately relevant to us in the idea of not so much persecution, but public pressure. Uh, Daniel, what you have to understand is this is, the book of Daniel is exilic literature. What that means is Daniel and his friends are in exile. They're under captivity in the nation of Babylon. It's not just like moving to a foreign country 
uh, or, or moving to a different state. It's almost, in a sense, because there's such a different worldview, it's almost like being transported from like 1900 to 2000. Uh, it's an entirely different worldview that they're dealing with. Daniel and his friends were coming from a culture that assumed in all of the cultural institutions like government and uh, the arts and higher academia and the culture, they assumed the existence and the predominance of the God of the Bible. And they were moving to a culture that at best was dismissive of the God of the Bible and at worst was actually antagonistic towards the God of the Bible and any of his worshipers. And so the, the benefit of the book of Daniel is it teaches us more than any other book, arguably, it teaches us how to live as Christians of integrity in a society that very clearly is pluralistic, polytheistic, and, and post, in our case, post-Christian, but what we might call non-believing. Daniel does that as well as any other spot. And, and I'll tell you what, the, the Babylonians also have a completely fascinating way of dealing with people who think differently than they do and integrating their culture. Uh, because Babylon was the first civilization to really do this. Prior civilizations before Babylon, when they went in and they conquered a country, they would subjugate that people by force in one of two ways. Either they would subjugate them by enslaving them right there at that spot, or they would deport those people and essentially just plunder all of their land and all of their commodities and all of their property and so forth, and they'd push them out of the land. The problem with both of those methods is it tended to leave the people together and they gained this like resurgence of, of willpower and uh, they were inclined to riot. So what the Babylonians came up with was this incredibly fascinating method of assimilating the, a new culture into the Babylonian culture. So what they would do is they would take the best and the brightest of the people that they conquered. Generally speaking, it was the young professionals. And when they would take them and they would send them essentially to go to college in Babylon for three years. And that during that whole cultural immersion experience, these young movers and shakers, these young professionals would start to appreciate uh, the nuances of the Babylonian culture. And then after three years, what the Babylonians would do is they would release them and reintroduce those people back into their native culture. And since they were disproportionately influential within the context of their culture, all of a sudden there was a trickle-down effect. And it's like the coolest kids in school, and everybody else is starting to dress that way and talk that way and act that way, and the culture became assimilated. It was a fascinating methodology, and the Babylonians were the first to do it. It didn't work in Daniel's case because Daniel and his friends bucked the system. Uh, how did they buck the system? Well, throughout the history of God's people, God's people, whenever they're met with a culture that doesn't believe or teach exactly the same things that they do, they tend to do, there's a temptation to do one of two things. Either you can sort of uh, submissively acquiesce to the culture or you can defiantly disengage from the culture. That's the, the, the basic two temptations when we're found with a circumstance that we don't think fits our worldview. Uh, what does that look like? Defiant disengagement looks like staying away from people as much as possible. It's, like, it's, it's almost like the monastic thought process. I don't want to dirty my hands with the evils and the awfulness of this world and the sinners and the, all the sin that exists in the world, and so I'll just disengage, and I'll move to the mountains, and I'll get away. Uh, to some extent, uh, we talk about this a lot as being a church in the city. To some extent, I'm not saying everybody, but I'm saying it can be an argument uh, for like a suburban mentality. 
is I just want to get away from problems and get away from behaviors that I don't approve of and get away from a bunch of that sort of thing. Defiant disengagement. Uh, on the flip side, some people are tempted to do what I would call submissive uh, acquiescing. And those people basically go into the culture and go into the city and go into that new place and they become exactly like it. And they leave behind all of their cultural distinctiveness and they just uh, look and sound and taste and act exactly like all the people in the new culture that they enter into. Neither one of those is what God intends for his people to do. When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about us, be, about us being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, he tells us to go into something different than us but stay different from that culture. Now, you can't be transformative if you don't engage with a culture. If you just stay on the outside of it, you can't transform it. But if you go in and become exactly like it, you also can't transform it because you're just become, you've become transformed like them. What God designs for us to do, what Jesus says is the salt of the earth is, I want you to go in there, but I want you to not lose your saltiness. I want you to create flavoring and preservative power within that distinct culture. And that's exactly what Daniel and his friends are seeking to do here. And I'm going to show you how they do it. You can see it in the, the first two verses of our lesson, uh, which are essentially, they're, they're going to be my three points for tonight. And they're kind of the summary of the entire book of Daniel, how he goes about engaging with his culture. Let me reread for you verses 8 through 9. It says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. So our first point tonight is going to be Daniel's spiritual resolution. He says, I don't care what you do to me. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to compromise on this. And then he asks the chief official for permission. He doesn't just demand his rights. He politely asks for permission not to defile himself this way. We're going to look at Daniel's social grace. And finally, we say, uh, read that God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. So our last point is going to be God's obvious, compassionate favor. Daniel's spiritual resolution, Daniel's social grace, God's compassionate favor uh, is kind of our blueprint for engaging in a world around us that most sociologists will now say is decidedly, at least the cultural institutions are post-Christian. First of all, Daniel's spiritual resolution. Part of the cultural assimilation process was not just that Daniel and his friends would sit in classrooms and study the culture of the Babylonians, though they did do that. They sat in classrooms and they learned uh, the agriculture and the architecture and the mathematics and uh, the natural sciences and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But you know as well as I do that your worldview is not, a cultural worldview is not entirely just based on knowledge. It's not just based on your brain, it's also based on your stomach. Uh, your, your gut shapes your perception of the world as much as your brain does in some respects. And there's some interesting science on that too, but this is part of the reason why there's so many different ethnic cuisines. It's part of the reason why you like going around and getting your Chinese food or your Mexican food or your Italian food or whatever else. Because there is a lot to be absorbed from a culture on the basis of their cuisine. The Jews certainly knew that. And even to a greater degree did they practice that than you and I. And so for Daniel and his friends to actually eat the food that went to the king's table, even though it would have been a better prepared meal than any meal they'd had in their lives, they couldn't do it. They couldn't in good conscience do it, and for two basic reasons. Number one, it was understood that any meal that was prepared for the king's table was automatically sacrificed to the idols. That clearly would go against God's will. Number two, if you read through, you can read through uh, like Leviticus 11. And you find that the Jewish dietary restrictions were very careful about not only what they were allowed to eat, but even just how it was prepared for them to eat. 
And so it would have been a complete uh, violation for Daniel and his friends to eat this meal. It would have been totally disrespectful to God. Now, you say, but aren't there certain hills to die on in life? And what difference does it make if you just eat a certain meal? And for that matter, you know, why make a big stink about this? Because if we get in power and we do really good and we become buddy-buddy with the king and we get elevated into office in Babylon, we can do a whole lot of good for our people. We can work for the welfare of our people. So why fight this battle right here? In other words, Daniel and uh, his friends could have privatized their religion at this point. You know what privatized religion really is? It means behind closed doors... I say and I feel and I believe a certain thing, but when I get out into public, uh, I act just in accord with whatever the the world around me acts. Uh, If you're ever curious, where do we get this? This is a really big concept for believers today. Where do we get the idea of the privatized religion in America that is the norm mentality, the norm worldview of a 21st century person in America today, privatized religion? Uh, Christian Smith is a Notre Dame researcher who has, he's, he's about as good of a writer on uh, trends for young adults in America and their faith habits as, as we've had in the past decade. And several years ago, he wrote a book called The Secular Revolution, in which he traces the history of the privatization of faith in America. And what he would say is if you go back to 1870, approximately 1870 to 1930, almost all the cultural institutions in our country were Protestant. Protestant in the sense that they had Protestants running them, in the sense that they had Protestant values, in the sense that they had a kind of a Protestant mindset and outlook on the world. And something happened in the middle of the 20th century as America, particularly in higher academics, became greatly influenced by European culture at that time. And European culture was pushing something called positivism and natural theology. Now, I'm not going to get into the, deeply what that all means, but what in short it means is Basically, what we were now saying, at least in higher academic settings, is, you know what? You can believe whatever you want to believe behind closed doors. That's perfectly fine. You're perfectly free. But when you get out in public, you know what we're going to discuss in the public sector? We're only going to discuss things that we can prove in a science laboratory, what we can experience through our senses, or things that uh, we experience in our feelings and in our emotions. Um, again, you can, you can believe whatever you want to believe behind closed doors, but in the social sphere, the only thing that we really should talk about so as not to offend anybody, so as not to hurt anybody, so as not to belittle anybody, uh, are things that we can prove in a laboratory, the, the scientific facts that we can sense, and our genuine and true emotions. Now, this doesn't mean that in the middle of the 20th century, uh, the world in American culture became non-Protestant. What it does mean is that the cultural institutions, the things that shape the way people think, those absolutely uh, were promoting this privatization of faith. Now, Daniel and his friends, 20th century America didn't invent this, and the European Enlightenment didn't invent this. Uh, Daniel and his friends were facing a worse form of it, but they don't give in. What do they say? They have resolve. They don't compromise. Think about how easy the slippery slope of compromise. Daniel resolved, he intentionally thought, I I cannot, I will not defile myself with the royal food that is placed on the table before me. Now, I want you to think through carefully how easily this just creeps into the the natural, ordinary, day-to-day affairs of our lives. Uh, Let's just say business. In your business world, let's say you're a salesperson. And your company largely encourages you to do certain things that are not 
illegal per se, but they're fairly ruthless, arguably dishonest. What do you do? I had a friend a number of years ago who uh, worked in finance and sales for BMW, and uh, he told me that uh, people, some people, when they come to purchase a car, they have more money than they know what to do with, and uh, it's very easy for me to sell them way more than they need, and for that matter, I do all their financing for them, and I can finance them at whatever rate that I want to, and they're not going to put up too much fuss about it, and I work entirely on commission so I can get exactly what I want, and it goes directly towards me. What do I do? Uh, slightly different example. There's uh, another researcher, a guy who's a uh, sociologist at the University of Texas named Mark Regnerus, is the guy who uh, America has been turning to in the past 10 years for the best research on the sexual behaviors of young adult Americans. And one of the interesting things he found, one of the reasons this was so fascinating to church leaders about five years ago, is he prepared this report called Premarital Sex in America. And the thing that he discovered after over 20,000 interviews was that if you are a young, educated, college-educated adult male, your sexual behaviors, uh, if you call yourself an evangelical Christian, are exactly the same as the sexual behaviors of somebody who says they are non-religious. In other words, if you were born and raised, if you're a college-educated male between the ages of 18 and 30, and uh, you were raised in a household that said that sex outside of marriage is wrong, or you're a college-educated male and you were raised in a household that said sex outside of marriage is perfectly fine and it's not a, not a big deal. Statistically, the patterns between the two behaviors were identical. Both were over 80% of guys who fell into that category were involved in some kind of sexual activity outside of marriage in their life. What does that mean? What does it mean if the young adult Christians in our country have uh, business practices that are exactly the same as their secular counterparts? What does it mean if the young Christians in our country have the exact same sexual behaviors as their non-believing sec secular counterparts? What does it mean if the young adult Christians in our country uh, have the exact same hopes and dreams and they form their identity the exact same way and they have ex the exact same life pursuits as their non-believing counterparts in the secular world. I'll tell you what it means. It means that they're bowing down to the gods of this age. They're eating the meal at the table of the food that's been sacrificed to idols. What else could that possibly mean? Now, this isn't exactly persecution that we're facing. It's certainly satanic work. It's not, but this is why Satan is so crafty. Because you see, it's not really persecution, but it absolutely is pressure to conform. And if you don't think that that's a real thing, I guarantee you, you're ripe for the pickings right now. That this is a reality and a, and a temptation in our matter. Which brings me to the second point. Daniel and his friends, they don't give in. Instead, they do what? Uh, they... It says two spots that I want to direct your attention to. In eight, it says, Daniel asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And then in a couple of verses later, it says, please test your servants for 10 days. Now, what I want you to see here is his politeness. See, Daniel wasn't privatized in his faith at all. In fact, if you continue to read in the book of Daniel, you get to chapter 6, and chapter 6.10 says that when Daniel prayed, have you heard this before? Daniel prays three times a day, windows open, facing Jerusalem, anybody can see him. 
He's not hiding anything there. He's not closing his shutters or anything like that. The whole world can see. He's not flaunting it, but he's also not privatizing it. But he does it so respectfully. He's not demanding his rights. He's not asking for special privileges. In fact, he he doesn't ask for additional uh, blessings. He asks simply to refrain from certain kinds of behavior. And he says, he asks for permission. And he says, please. This is very different from a Christian demanding their First Amendment rights. there's always, every once in a while, at least once a year, you get these kind of major flare-ups of the separation of church, church and state deal. Uh, about a year ago, I filed away an article of a church down in Jacksonville uh, that the parishioners, some of the kids in their church had gone to the local public school. And their kids had told their parents that they don't let us pray in school. And what was the first thing that the people of that church did? They got poster boards and permanent markers, and they filled out their signs, and they organized a community march on the school property. So sure enough, they march around town and march on the school property and uh, get the school board out there. And the school board, you know, lo and behold what they find? Not only are the kids allowed to pray in school, but the school actually carves out time at the beginning of every day so that every kid can have private time for whether they want to pray or they want to reflect or meditate or whatever else they want to do. See, here's the thing. Sometimes Christians are looking to pick a fight instead of looking to be polite. Sometimes, sometimes Christians kind of antagonize the world, and then when the world claps back, Christians say, ah, that's persecution. No, you're just kind of being a jerk. You're not being nearly as polite, nearly as gracious, nearly as humble as what Daniel is doing, Daniel and his friends. See? Uh, Daniel's not asking for special favors. He's simply being respectful in what he's doing. Now, by the way, this, this whole thing makes me think of our college students and how they navigate life today because Daniel and his friends absolutely drew a line on what their consciences would and would not allow them to do based on what God had commanded them to do. But when it came to learning other information that they disagreed with, they didn't necessarily ask for special privileges. Daniel and his friends sat in the same classes as the rest of the guys. And my guess is they probably over the course in those textbooks learned some things that they weren't completely on board with. They probably heard some things about the origins of the universe and about the gods who are in control and about human sexuality and about a bunch of other things that they didn't necessarily agree with. And you know what they did? They politely disagreed. They learned about the culture and they politely and respectfully said, that's not for me. And you know what they also said? You can do whatever you want to me in that case. I'm happy to learn whatever about the culture, but at that point you can do with me whatever you will. Here's my line that I won't go past. And you know how God responds to that uh, whole behavior? Brings me to the third point. Finally, we learn, again, it's verse 9 here. Now, God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. And interestingly enough, he doesn't just make, so they have this diet of veggies. They don't get any, like, real protein or, or, or carbs or anything like that. Although they might have had carbs. It's a little bit debatable what their diet was. Uh, but after 10 days, not only do they look as healthy as the other guys who are eating at the king's table, but they actually look healthier, And further evidence that this is actually God's intervention and not just a special diet or something like that uh, is the fact that if you read verses 15 to 21, you find out that when they studied all the subjects that the other guys studied, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, found them to be 10 times smarter and 10 times better in their understanding than their peers. Why? Because of God's intervention. 
Therefore, the message of Daniel, particularly Daniel chapter 1, is what? God is constantly active in the lives of his people, no matter where they are, no matter how far away from him they might think they are. Uh, And for that matter, we see that a couple different times. We didn't read it at the very beginning, but King Jehoiakim, the king of Jerusalem and Judah, was resistant to God's will. And God allowed King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to come in and defeat Jerusalem and defeat Judah as a, as a judgment against King Jehoiakim and the country's unfaithfulness. He was active in their lives. Furthermore, Daniel and his friends are, in fact, faithful to what God has to say, and God is active there, and he brings about favor and compassion. But here's the thing that I don't want you to think, and I don't want you to miss this, because I've heard this taught this way probably many times. The message of Daniel is not simply that if you are faithful and do the right thing, God is going to get you out of all the troubles that you face in life. You know, if I'm faithful and I do the right thing, God's going to deliver me from the lion's den just like he delivered Daniel from the lion's den. He's going to deliver me from the fiery furnace just like he delivered those three guys from the fiery furnace. That's not necessarily true. Otherwise, I can't make sense of the book of Job. And for that matter, I don't know that I can make sense of the life of Jesus. Because Jesus was more faithful than Daniel, and he was more courageous than Daniel, and he was more humble than Daniel, but he got something, he faced a lion much more ferocious than Daniel, and he faced a furnace much hotter than Daniel, than the three men in the fiery furnace. Uh, So what does it mean? It means that no matter what furnace you face in life, and no matter what lion's den you might face in life, God is active every step of the way. And because he faced the ultimate lion for you, because Jesus faced the ultimate furnace for you, no matter what you face, you can say, it can't be because he doesn't love me. Because if he's willing to do that, if he's willing to do the cross for me, what he's allowing right now cannot be because he doesn't love me. And furthermore, if, if I... In my life as a Christian, as a little Christ with his spirit in me, and following his path, that means on the other side of whatever cross that I'm facing right now, you know what I'm going to find? I'm going to find life and resurrection and victory. Um, the, final le- the final words of this lesson, this is, the first, this is interesting to me because every once in a while this happens when I'm studying a text, and this is the first time I've ever seen this in this text, but the last verse of this lesson, the last verse of chapter 1 says what? It says, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. You know why this is so interesting? King Cyrus, he's actually, he's not a Babylonian king. He's the king of Persia. Once the Persians come in and they defeat the Babylonians and they give the the Jews the opportunity to return home, what does this mean? It's not like, so if you go to chapter 2 of Daniel, it doesn't just pick up with Persia. It doesn't fast forward 70 years when King Cyrus becomes king. It goes back to the regular narrative. Why on earth does the Holy Spirit have this verse inspired right here? That Daniel remains until even Cyrus becomes king. What what Holy Spirit's trying to tell you is Daniel outlasts all the Babylonian leaders. Daniel outlasts the entire nation of Babylon. Daniel outlasts all his captors and all his oppressors. And anybody who turns to the exact God that Daniel turns to in their good times and in their bad times are going to outlast all of their captors and all of their oppressors as well. Remind yourself of that and simply just live out of that joy. Which brings me to the final point. I couldn't get out of a sermon without bringing this point up. Is that you know what the name Daniel actually means? Daniel. It's God is my judge. 
As we're talking about being powerful witnesses in the world, you know why Daniel was such a convinced and convicted witness? Because he knew that the only opinion that really mattered already saw him as his perfect child. And therefore Daniel said, I don't, what difference does it make what the rest of a sinful world says about me or thinks about me if the God of the universe loves me and adores me as his own kid? I can speak up and I can act according to that God's will and I know in the end it always works out for good. If you realize that he took the ultimate lion, you will be able to face the little lion cubs that chomp at you in life. If you realize that he faced the ultimate furnace in your place, you will be able to face the little toaster ovens that you face in life. It will make you courageous to speak up no matter what, but you'll do it boldly and you'll do it humbly. Let's close with the prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, more of us than we'd like would, would uh, have to confess that we have compromised in some areas in our lives and we've rationalized our behavior and become assimilated, over-assimilated to the world around us. And sometimes we've just run away from the world and its pain and its, and its struggles. Neither of those are what you're asking us to do. You have sent us with a great commission into the world, into the messiness, uh, but you've, you've placed your spirit inside of us that we can be your people, that we can be a source of light and transformation to the world, that we can tell the world how you, by grace, not because of our faithfulness, but because of your faithfulness, you have made us your children forever. Let us rejoice in that fact and speak it boldly and speak it humbly and speak it respectfully to the world around us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.